Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 386 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I am CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and your co-host. I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Firestar, A Maven and Reeve Mystery, and many other books. How are you, Al? Well, I'm not going to lie, because, you know, I do like to be honest, and I'm always honest. Um, I've got a toothache. So I'm probably subpar, to be perfectly frank. So the fact that I'm here, I have got an appointment for later today. Is it at (sighs) 2.30? It is not at 2.30, although that joke has been going around in my head. Thanks very much for that. That joke has been going around in my head for about 24 hours. (laughs) What time is it? 2.30. And it doesn't actually even matter what time it is. Um, Yeah, so I've got a toothache and all I can think about is hoping that they don't have to like pull all my teeth out. Do you immediately go to the worst case scenario? Root canal. (laughs) It's not going to be root canal. No, it won't be. It'll be fine. I'm not going with that. I'm just hoping it's going to be something that's really super easy to fix and requires no pain and nothing drilling. That's what I'm hoping for. And it's all about mindset, right? Because I think he's a good tactic because I've, I never go to the dentist ever, ever, ever Mm -hmm. because I go to the tooth spa. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You go to it. So tell me, you're (laughs) going to a practice called the tooth spa? No. In my head, I just think to myself, I'm going to the tooth spa. Are you because serious? then it makes it so much more palatable. You know, they massage your teeth just like when you go to the day spa. It's great. <laughs> it's a great way to think about going to the dentist. Speaking of painful, which that yes. particular image actually really is, uh, the oh. other thing I'm doing that's kind of got me below par this week is um, so you might recall that I I spent some time in January doing the structural edit for um, the second Maven and Reeve mystery. Yes. And um, and it was, and it went off, and it was great, and whatever. Well, here's a little secret for you: it can come back to you with a couple further queries on it. Mm. So it's come back to me for with for a little revision, um, most of which is very simply sorted out. I just have to kind of, you know, there's a little bit of, it's a bit like the tooth spa. There's a bit of massaging involved. <laughs> But one of them, and my um, my editor Mary is really lovely and does such a great job. And she she has very very politely pointed out to me that there is a thirty four page chapter in my middle grade novel, thirty four pages. So that's going to wow, require a bit of a tweak. Nuts. It should, prob- it should probably it should probably be. Yeah, it should be more of the 10 to 15 page mm. kind of um, or shorter even, some of them, um, kind of area. Because, you know, as as we were kind of laughing about, you can just imagine the kid in bed going, oh, just one more chapter, mum. Mm. Just read me one more chapter. <laughs> and and, um, and there's mum an hour later still <laughs> trawling through the 34-page <gasps> chapter. So that's something I have to be uh, another sort of thing for me to be doing this week. Um, but, yeah, so that's where I'm at, we'll people. I've got I've got edit. And and a toothache, so cheerful, oh. huh? No, but it's okay. The toothache's going to be fixed at the tooth spa. The tooth spa. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll live we that wanna, dream, shall I? <laughs> we want to give a big shout out to Jason D two nine five one from Japan, who's an Aussie living in Japan, who kindly left us a review on Apple Podcasts, a five star review, and said, "A touch of home." 
I'm enjoying the in-between episodes. I'm an Aussie living overseas and these stories and conversations help keep me in touch with home. Isn't that awesome, Al? I think that's lovely how we're connecting with expats all around the world, but also non-expats. I love the fact that Jason's dialing in for his weekly dose of Aussie accent. And on that, I would like to say, g'day, mate. Yeah, good day. Thank you very Jason. much for the review and thank you so much for for popping in to have a listen to us rattle yes, on about absolutely. our toothaches. About mm. our toothaches. And if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to this uh, podcast, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in all of the rankings and the algorithms and reaching more people out there like Jason. So mm. thank you. Thank you. All right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week. Uh, the Vogel. The Vogel. The Vogel. Okay. The Australian slash Vogel, as it's known now, Valerie. Let's yes, get it right. Yes, of yep. course. The Australian slash Vogel Literary Award. Um, so it's open for submissions for anyone who is unfamiliar with the Vogel. It is one of Australia's most, you know, famous and prestigious literary awards. It's launched many careers, including people like Tim Winton, Mandy Sayer, Kate Grenville, Andrew That's McGann. That's some big, big names. names there. Yes. So very, I'm very sad that I've just I've aged out of it this year because you know you've got to be under 35. under 35. So you know, if you're under 35 and you've got a manuscript, ready to go it has to be you have to be under 35 on the Mm. 31st of may 2021 you have to be an australian citizen or permanent resident the manuscript uh submitted with the entry form has to be a work of fiction australian history or biography that's a minimum length of 50,000 words and a maximum length of 80,000 words and entries close on the 31st of may 2021 so you know what if you're there and that fits you get into it Absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, if you've got a manuscript that you just need some dusting off, you've got till May. So fantastic. Yeah. Um, Get organised. Now, you have uh, a link for us from Hannah Heath's website, which is really interesting. I do. So Hannah Heath is an author and this uh, actual um, link is at this uh, post is probably a couple of years old now, but I came across it thanks to Pinterest. I mean, seriously, I could wow. lose days of my life on Pinterest. Yeah. Um, and it stood out for me because it's something that you don't see that often. It's called, because there's a lot of how to start a book, how to, you know, there's a lot of that going on out there. But this is specific, eight tips for writing arguments. And very I thought, specific. you know what? But also it's a very overlooked aspect, you know. It is. Writing, writing conflict is not easy and written arguments can often be, you know, stilted, sort of unrealistic, you know, like they, it's hard to get that dialogue right. And the, the reason for it, I think, um, is all kind of wrapped up in her first uh, tip. So she's got mm-hmm. eight tips for writing arguments. And the first one is to take your character's personality into account. And I think this is something oh, yeah. that... We often forget when we're writing, you know, like you're going to think about that kind of stuff. Like I always use the example when I go to schools about, you know, you've got to think about your about your character's personality. And once you've created that personality, you've got to think, you've got to stick with it all the way. So if you've got like a shy sort of retiring nerdy sort of a kid um, and he's going to a party, he, he's going to approach that party in a very specific way. Like he's not going to be like 
wandering into the middle of the room high-fiving people. Mm. And we have to think about that when it comes to these kinds of things with conflict as well because and a lot of it, I think, comes back to the backstory of your character, the kind of household they grew up in. Because if you grew up in a household where there was a lot of shouting and yelling and hand-waving and, you know, there was like things blow up and then they're gone, you know, they blow over, it's over, mm. it's all forgotten about. If you grow up in that household and then you're in a relationship or having an argument with somebody who grew up in a household where things, you know, arguments were often almost unspoken. There was a whole mm. lot of freezing out and walls of yep. silence. And yep. um, if you're having an argument with, if those two people are having an argument, it's a really different sort of an argument to whether if you've got two people coming together of, of the hand-waving, yelling kinds of, you know, types of people. Yep. So, you can't just discard your character's personality because they're having an argument. Um, it's really important that they take that personality and that background into the argument. And then you've got to think about how you're going to manage this because some people freeze up. Some people mm. are very logical in an argument. Some people, like arguing with one of my sisters who has been to a whole lot of um, – she's she's sort of like done a lot of corporate – you know, mediation sort of uh, work, you know, yeah. and and arguing with her is like, from my perspective, just incredibly frustrating because she'll be all, she'll be all like, I hear what you're saying, Alison. What you're saying is blah blah, and she's repeating it back to me. And then she's like, but then have you thought about blah blah? And I, at which point, I throw my hands up in the air and flounce out of the room and say and tell her to, you know, go back to the office. So you know, there's think about those sorts of things as you're as with these with these sorts of with, with your argument with your dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I see, uh, especially new writers, um, something that they do is they feel that they need to write the entire argument from the, you know, the the build up until the explosion and then kind of like the aftermath of the argument. But what's really important is to understand, well, ask yourself, what is the function of this scene? If the function of this scene is to actually illustrate how little things can build to an argument, sure, include the build-up. But if the function of this scene is actually the outcome of the argument, you don't need all that preamble. You don't need all of the build-up. You can even start the scene mid-argument sometimes. So very much, well, it's very important to ask yourself what the function of the scene is so you're not including extra guff in the argument that really doesn't need to be there. No, that's true. But having said that, yes. um, you also need to, and, and these are two tips from, from Hannah as well, mm. you also have to have a reason for the argument. The reason oh, yes, for the argument course. has to be there and it has to be clear. And the background to that argument needs to actually not be all in the one scene, but you mm. want to build up tension before an argument, you know, you know, like maybe, maybe there's like hurt feelings in chapter two. There's yes, you know small digs chapter. at each other in chapter four. There's mm. a tense kind of a situation, like probably me walking out of the room on my sister somewhere in about <laughs> chapter five. And then you have that big kind of like just that the actual argument happened later. So it's almost like your argument. You've got to think about the narrative arc of the argument mm. as much as anything, um, yes. as as over the course of the whole um, of the whole story. Yep. 
Yep. Mm. Great. So that blog post is, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can also go to um, Hannah's, Hannah Heath's website. Um, mm. Just Google Hannah Heath writer. Mm. Um, all right. So let us move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of the novel, The Speechwriter by Martin Mackenzie Murray to give away. Uh, Martin is a speechwriter as himself and also a journalist for the Saturday paper. He writes a lot about um, political affairs and this is his fiction debut. Toby, former speechwriter to the PM, is locked behind bars in a high-security prison with the worst of Australia's criminals forcing him to ghostwrite letters to their loved ones (laughs) or have his spine repurposed as a coat rack. How did he get here? From the vantage point of his prison cell, Toby pens his memoir, trying to piece together how he fell so far, all the while fielding the uninvited literary opinions of his murderous cellmate, Gary. Realising that his political career is far from the noble endeavour he once imagined it would be, Toby makes a bid for freedom. Before the terrible realisation dawns, it's impossible to get fired from the public service. Refusing to give up, Toby's attempts to get fired grow more and more extreme and he finds himself being propelled higher and higher through the ranks of bureaucracy. Well, we have three copies to give away. Just go to writerscentercomau slash win um, and follow the instructions. And entries close on the 22nd of February. The Speechwriter by Martin Mackenzie Murray, who back in the day was actually one of the category winners of the Best Australian Blogs competition run by the Australian Writers' Centre. So he's, and, and th- this was before he was a journalist with Saturday Paper, he just r- had a really good blog where he wrote commentary on many things, but especially politics. Well, there's so, a fun fact. There's a fun fact, yes. Hmm. So writercentre.com.au slash win. Which brings us to our... Are you ready for the word of the week? Speaking of fun facts, um, <laughs> given that I'm already in pain with a toothache, I'm probably about as ready as I'll ever be. Alison! <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm I do my best. To continue. It is exuriant. That's E-S-U-R-I-E-N-T. Exuriant. Do you know what that means? Are you clapping your hands with glee? Yes. That is <laughs> so am. smug. I do not know what it means. No. Okay. It sounds like it's something to do with luxur- luxurious because exuriant, right? But mm. according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it's actually an adjective meaning hungry or greedy. So you could say that one of the most popular picture books of all time was about an exuriant caterpillar. You could say that, but you you wouldn't, would you? Yeah, you would, because I, mean, I just did. <laughs> I'm actually just about knocked the microphone off my head with that <laughs> particular little thing. Um, okay, if there are any graphic types out there, if you would like to repurpose the cover of The Hungry Caterpillar and put the Azurian Caterpillar on it for Val, then that would be great. Thank you. All right. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre and our course, Crime and Thriller Writing. In this five-week online course, you'll discover how to write a gripping page-turner, the different types of crime and thriller fiction, the ingredients every good story needs, how to manage characters, pace, suspense and climax, and publishing options and much more. And you'll get feedback on your writing from your tutor. Let's hear from Shankari Chandran. 
When I first decided to do a course at the AWC, I had been writing for a few years. I had taken time out of my career as a lawyer to have our fourth child and life was chaotic but I had always wanted to write and so I thought I would give it a go in between baby feeds and school runs and so on. I have just published The Barrier with Pan Macmillan Australia and I'm loving it. For many years being published felt like an impossible dream, like something that happened to other people. When I heard that I was going to be published, I was at Officeworks because I find buying stationery really therapeutic and I put down my stationery and cried. The AWC's course has had a huge impact on my writing. It's changed my understanding of the thriller genre and my approach to writing it. Because of the clarity the course gave me, I feel far more confident doing it. I feel incredibly fortunate that my books have been published now. I love writing. It's energizing and meditative for me. I feel really committed to the stories I'm telling and I hope to keep doing it. Look, I would absolutely recommend the courses at the AWC uh, to friends, aspiring authors, anyone. I would say do a course, do lots of courses, and do them earlier rather than later on your writing path. It's worth it. To find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash crime. Right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. We're chatting to Pip Drysdale. Now, her debut novel a while back, The Sunday Girl, just went nuts. Bestseller, published in so many countries, including the United States, Italy, Poland, Czech Republic, everywhere. Wow. The second novel, The Strangers We Know, also a bestseller and being developed for television. I mean, how good is that? Her third novel... Yeah, pretty good. Her third novel is The Paris Affair. And so we're chatting to Pip Drysdale. Pip Drysdale, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Congratulations on your latest book, The Paris Affair. It is a page turner on so many levels, but we'll get into that. Um, For those who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, um, can you tell listeners what it's about? Okay, so Harper Brown is an expert in all the truly important things in life, like picking locks, breaking her way out of car boots, talking her way out of trouble and avoiding romantic relationships. She's addicted to true crime podcasts and used to write a micro column called How Not to Get Murdered. All she wants in life is to be an investigative journalist. And so when she gets a job in Paris as an arts and culture writer, she quits her job in marketing and boards the next Eurostar. This could be a stepping stone to her dream job. All she has to do is whatever it takes to get there. But it turns out that the city of love has a darker side too. And soon Harper finds herself entangled in a web of lies, trying to piece together a series of murders and chasing down the scoop of a lifetime. This is the story that could change her life, make her career. But only if the killer doesn't catch her first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, like I said, this is your third novel. Your first was The Sunday yeah. Girl and then The Strangers We Know. And yes. I'm currently talking to you from your place in uh, Western Australia. But yes. can you just give, before we get into the your creative process and the book and all of that, I'd just like yeah. to give listeners a bit of context. Can you give us just a bit of a potted career history so far so we can know what led you up to this point? Oh, my goodness. You know, 
it's actually hard to do that quickly. I feel like everything in my life led me up to this point. You know, I, um, I had a series of day jobs my whole life. Um, and I was always doing creative things on the side. So basically I had two full-time jobs. I was a singer songwriter and used to play a ton of festivals and toured a lot through Europe. Um, and I was also an actress. Like I started, that was actually the first creative thing I really got into when I was living in New York, um, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and I was always doing both of those things. And then a series of things happened. I mean, I literally cannot explain to you why suddenly I was ready to start writing novels because it was one of those things where I'd say to people, yeah, I'm going to write a novel or, you know, one day I'll just start writing books about everything, you know, <laughs> but it never like, you know, and then one day that day came and I, it was a series of things. It wasn't just one thing, you know, I don't think anything is ever just one thing. Mm. But you so know? when did you start writing your first novel then and and, um, and what uh, compelled you was, just to write that one? Okay, so that was in 2015. I was mm-hmm. working full-time um, as a property analyst at the time in London um, and I would write it on the weekends. So um, I'd go to this diner and focus pretty much all morning on Saturday or Sunday. Um, I just had this story I really wanted to tell and – I didn't really think beyond that. You know, people would always ask me, well, how are you going to get published? And all I ever really thought about was trying to write the best book I could because I really had no idea what I was doing. Hey, like it was a lot of work. Um, so, and then I had finished it and, um, I started sending it out to agents and I got back a few positive, um, declined <laughs> like a few <laughs> non <non-form, laughs> a few non-form letter rejections which um were basically I love what you're doing but it's not for me and then often they would offer a little bit of help like um advice as to what didn't work for them and then I would change the manuscript and send it out to a few more and the process would repeat and then um at the beginning of 2017, I randomly posted on my Instagram that I was going to start waking up super early to write um, for the whole of the year because, you know, it was mm-hmm. the new year and so you start making these major promises to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was going to wake up at 5 a.m. or something, which did not happen because I'm not a morning person. But <laughs> um, as a result of that um, post, uh, someone I'd met literally two times, um, once at Ascot and another time when I was in Tamworth doing a music thing, um, <laughs> saw it and she was like, well, what are you writing? And I told her, um, well, I sent her the first, she said, can I see the first chapter? And I sent it to her and she was like, um, can I send it to my friend um, who works in publishing? And I thought, mm. well, why not? You know, um, like literally you just never know. So I was yeah. like, yeah, sure. She did. And then it got forwarded on to the general manager who, bless him, um, was came back saying, can I have the whole manuscript? And told me he thought that I had talent, but there was work that needed to be done. So I went and did all the work, yeah. and which was a lot. And then um, they signed me for a two-book deal. So that happened. And thankfully Fantastic. the Sunday go went really well. Yeah. That's great. And, <laughs> and, yeah. and a good lesson in, you know, just putting it out there. Totally. I think you just like need tenacity and to know that it's not going to be perfect at the beginning, but you just keep working at it. And, you know, I kind of think long game, like I really think this is my life now. Right. So Mm. I feel like provided I don't drop dead tomorrow, which you just never know, that's quite a while and a lot of books to write and stuff. So I just keep trying to get better, really. 
Yeah, fantastic. All right, so in The Paris Affair, uh, you mentioned that the protagonist is Harper Brown, who we get to know extremely well. Um, Yeah. (laughs) How did you... How did this idea for form, how did the, this premise come into your brain? Oh, my God, I have no idea, hey. People <laughs> always want to know, like, how do you get your ideas? And, look, I'm sure there are writers out there who who something happens and they go, oh, I know what I'm going to do. It's this idea and it comes out perfectly formed. <laughs> for me, I kind of have these it's like, it's almost like I'm, I'm a conduit for lots of different things happening simultaneously. Some are internal, some are external. And then what happens happens and it kind of evolves as it goes. And then you learn things and it changes the story. And then the character does something and you go, oh my God, that's what she's like. And then you have to go back and rework the beginning. And, Mm. um, I, for me, it always feels a little bit like, I always say it's a bit like magic. So, I don't really know how to pull it apart and just say, this is where I got the idea. Cause it's not, right. um, it's never that simple for me. Personally. Well, <clears throat> we're going to try because okay. <laughs> <laughs> apart from the fact that obviously there is, you know, a great plot, one of the yeah. compelling things for a reader in this book is Harper and the yeah. character of Harper. Yeah. And it's written in first person, mainly first person from Harper's point of view. And yes. you really get into her head and you really, um, A, relate to her, B, yeah. um, uh, you know, the, her inner monologue is, is it really kind of speaks to you because it, it she's saying the things that you're really thinking and you're never saying kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I want to let's start with Harper then in terms of pulling it apart. How yeah. did you get into the head of Harper's character? And on a practical level, what did you do? Mm-hmm. Like, did you write notes about the kinds of bands she would like? Or, you know, how did you really immerse yourself in Harper, which is obviously what really drives this story? Well, I am immersive as like a writer to start with. So for example, I bought her a perfume, like I went through and I found a number of different ones that might smell right. And then I found the one that I felt was right for her. And it was actually a French perfume called um, Fleur Narcotic. So I would spray myself with that whenever I was um, getting ready to write. Um, And I I kind of lived her life for a good three months because I was living in Paris and I was in the apartment that I used for her. And um, I would catch her metros and um, I would go to the places she would go to. And I wandered around Montmartre and I got a feel for where I wanted Noah to live. And, you know, I really immersed myself. And then as a result of that, the ideas kind of come. Like um, I, I, that is, that's how I do it. And I mean, when you say that you really related to her and that the reader um, does, mm-hmm. I really related to her. She was mm-hmm. saying a lot of the things that I think and that I feel and that I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And so, but that I don't always voice. And so I was actually really worried that I'd be going too far and people would be <laughs> like, oh my God. Because <laughs> right? you just don't know, hey. But then I thought, you know what? You kind of have to be brave when you write a novel. And so that's what I did. I love it. So did you go to Paris um, specifically to do all of the above and, and write the manuscript? Or yeah. were you already there and you thought, oh, I'll write this now? 
No, I was in London and my um, publisher said, well, what are you planning for your next book? And I was planning a little bit of a trip across to Paris and I didn't really have a proper idea. Um, And I was just like, well, it's set in Paris. (laughs) And and then I kind of like cobbled together the story idea that felt interesting to me, you know, Um, and she loved it. And then I thought, well, now I have a book deal, you know, and so now I need to write it. So I went across to Paris and I wrote it. And um, it was hard, if I'm really honest. I, I kind of like had to live off of a shoestring when I was over there. Um, but it was so worth it. And, um, yeah, it was good. So you go to Paris and with the idea in your head and you are your plan is to write your manuscript. So can mm. you, apart from immersing yourself like, catching the, you know, metro to where she would have gone yeah. and going to places and all that kind of stuff, living the life of Harper. Yeah. Uh, di- can you just tell us, because you have to have some discipline when you write a manuscript, so can you almost describe yeah. your typical day so we can get a, an yeah. idea of when you wrote, how much you wrote, whether you got uh, aimed for a word count, you know, uh, any other okay. rituals you had and stuff like that? Well, what I always do, and this is whether I'm in Paris or no matter where I am, um, I wake up, I put on coffee and I write. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know why, but for some reason, when I first wake up, that is when I'm best at making new ideas. Um, What time do you wake up though? Oh my God, it changes. Like literally sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's eight, sometimes Mm -hmm. it's six. You know, sometimes I wake Mm -hmm. up at three in the morning and I will get up and I will do a little bit of work and then go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, But I try to do it um, whenever I wake up. So um, I'm, I don't, I'm not one of these writers who actually needs to discipline themselves because I'm just innately deeply disciplined. Um, and I find that writing is something that I'm quite compulsive about. So um, I would wake up and I would write for a bit, maybe two hours, and then I would kind of probably be cross with the manuscript because I didn't know what happened next. Mm-hmm. And I would go do something or like try to research something. And then I would... Um, come back and do more work. And I mean, it was a 24 seven activity though. It wasn't like I went there and I had a ton of friends in Paris to see or anything, you know, I was there for a purpose and, um, I was taking a lot of photographs of things and I was, um, taking a lot of video footage, all of which, well, not all, but a lot of which I'm going to be uploading to Instagram under the account um, Harper. Um, what is it? At New Dot Girl in Paris. So yes, that's so actually in the book. Actual Instagram. Yeah, yeah great. Yes, <laughs> she's got an Instagram now, um, and I will be uploading um, pictures when the release happens. So, um, so yeah, I mean. For me, it really is a 24-7 thing. It's not like I don't do anything else, but I'm kind of always thinking about it or um, having a tantrum about it or, like, mm. doing it and being excited about it. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's not always brilliant or easy or whatever, and there's a lot of work that I throw out, but I always find it informs what actually does find its way into the manuscript, you know? So did you um, uh, were you there for three months and how, and did you finish your manuscript at the end of that time? Oh no, hell no. No, I, um, because I was figuring it out as I went along, that was mainly kind of the experience, experiential aspect of the research and the first part. Like I left with a few chapters and an idea of who Harper was and a lot of, and the feeling of her life and where she was and everything. But, um, but the rest of the manuscript I wrote actually through, I'd say it was from November till, hmm, 
November till about June. And, you know, that was a very, it was quite a difficult time to write a manuscript because I was, I did two major tours in that time. So, you know, it would be like art promoting one book and then back in the hotel room, um, trying to, um, to cobble together this, which when you're writing a manuscript, well, when I'm writing a manuscript, I'm never really sure if it's going to pull together. It's always so exciting when it does. So, um, and do you then, mean June this year or June, sorry, do you yeah. mean June 2020? Yes, I do. So, so during COVID, when where were you? Yeah, during that time, um, I I was in um, Western Australia. So mm-hmm. um, during lockdown, I wrote it, and then I did the rewrites um, during COVID. So it's my twenty twenty baby, maybe mainly. Yes, right. Okay. I just didn't realize how accurate the Orwellian references were going to be. Yes, <laughs> when yes. I started in two thousand and nineteen. So, <laughs> so you. Um, <laughs> finished that in 2020 yeah. and obviously then yeah, it yeah. goes through a process and editing and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Did you already then, have you already started working on your next thing? Yes, I have. I um, I started that, like just gently started that at the beginning of December. So slowly starting to get my head around um, who she is and what she wants and everything. But yeah, so Okay, great. And so what, um, when you are, you know, you, you, you got an, a sense of Harper and, and, and the place mm. and all of that, and then you left Paris, did yeah. you already know the arc that she was going to go on? Like had you plotted out effectively just in your brain or wherever the, the, the rest of the book or you still didn't know what was going to happen? Um, no, I had an idea of what it was going to happen. Like I had an idea of the main plot points, mm. but um, – And I mean, the art, for example, um, I'd been interested in aspects of it and started looking into it while I was in um, Paris to start with. So it's almost like my subconscious knows the story and it knows the way the plot's going to go. So but I don't entirely understand how it all fits together at the beginning, you know. Mm. And I mean, I could lie to you and be like, yeah, I just come up with this great plot and then I just like go with it. But it's not (laughs) like that. It's messy, you know. Um, So... I had a lot of art history knowledge myself because I've spent a lot of time in Paris and a lot of time in galleries and um, and that partic- the particular kind of area of art that I have her referencing a lot mm-hmm. is one that I needed to, well, for the specific plot point in there. And also um, because that tends to be what Paris, th- what people think of when they think of Paris art, you know, because that was like the heyday of Parisian art, um, the Impressionism and stuff. So... Um, so yeah, sorry, did I answer your question? <laughs> no, no, that's good. So basically what you're saying is that you kind of know what's happening in your subconscious, but you haven't like yeah. put it on index cards or, or something like that. You, you let it come out no. organically. Although I do, um, I do get a whole heap of post-it notes and mm. plot out kind of where I think they're going to go and stuff. So they're movable. Mm. And I do sometimes have a spreadsheet that also kind of says it, but I very rarely refer to those things. You have a spreadsheet that does what's on the spreadsheet? Well, on the spreadsheet, I will write down kind of on the left-hand column, I'll say like what I think is going to happen in each scene so that Mm. I can move it around quite easily. Um, And I'll also say things like I'll also have a column for the hidden things that are happening because there's a lot of stuff that happens in this book that you have to keep track of when you're writing it, but which you don't immediately see when you're reading it, you know. So I needed to keep track of stuff. Right. So is that like a different column, like a parallel yes. column in your spreadsheet? Yeah. 
there are a lot of columns, but I couldn't tell you what's on them because I haven't faced <laughs> it in ages. And often a lot of the columns are useless. It's just, but they're there. Right. It's kind of like a brain dumping ground. Yeah. And also once you brain dump, it's almost like it's, it's kind of in your subconscious ready to go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So after you've written your first draft, what's yeah. your next step? Do you write many other drafts before you give it, say, to a reader or your editor or whatever? Or do you, um, oh yeah, what well, happens? I don't tend to do it the way everyone else does it, which okay. is I know a lot of people write the whole way through and yeah. then they go back and make changes. Yeah. I am making changes constantly. So um, I'll get maybe um, 25% of the way through and that will have taken me months because I'm reworking that beginning part over and over and over again because that is what's telling me everything I need to know about yeah. what happens later, right? Um, so by the time I get to 50% of the way through, um, it's quite, it's relatively quick, you know, from that point because I kind of am a ready harper, like I know her so well yeah. and I know where the story's going and I know everything I need to know, right? Mm. But a lot of my process for the first half is figuring the, those things out. Mm. Interesting. And so you also have really astute observations of uh, the characters. Like I totally understand you getting, immersing yourself in Harper because this yeah. is written in first person, but you have, you know, a cast of characters who yeah. um, you know, who we get to know and they have yeah. their own quirks and personalities and some of them are just really richly drawn. What do you do to create these characters? Because you're not immersing yourself in all of them. What do you do to make them come to life? How have you created them during the process so that they come alive on the page? <laughs> I feel like I'm going to have to lie to you to give you no, like, a, to give you like an answer like because I don't know. Like, <laughs> honestly, often it's more like I think about the feeling that Harper would be feeling because it's a first-person thing. Okay, so mm. I will, for example, let's take Sam, for example. Yeah. I will think about um, – what she might be up against at work, and I will have to find, make it something that I can truly identify with so I can experience her level of annoyance and anger and things. And so mm -hmm. that means that Stan needs to be the exact way he is because that's going to elicit that response in her. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't know. It's easy for me to um, – I don't know. I'm sorry. Does your, acting, to... does your acting training come into it because – you know, you have to really get to know your character in, in that kind of situation. Do you the act, use any of the that? Acting, the acting definitely helps in terms of getting into Harper's head and um, in terms of creating the first-person narrative and figuring out how she might behave and why she might behave that way. Like, it definitely helps in terms of that. Um, I don't know about secondary characters, mainly probably because I've never thought about it. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know how I do it, you know. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so um, what was the hardest thing about writing this book? Oh, my God, there were so many hard things. Okay, um, It was incredibly difficult. It was oh. incredibly difficult for a number of reasons. Firstly, mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm a super sensitive person, as I think most writers are. And so what was happening, um, you know, on the global scale mm. was really kind of filtering into me. And so I found it quite difficult to focus. Um, mm. That was one thing. Secondly, um, I found it really difficult because it has a lot to do with um, the French law. And 
that is a very different system to the Australian or the British or the American systems, all of which I'm relatively um, competent with, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there was a lot of learning that had to go on with that. Um, Even the way that the French um, police deal with um, the press is extremely different to the way that the... um, the police might deal with the press in the States, for example. Um, Then there was an incredible amount of learning required in order to pull off um, one of the major plot points um, in the middle, which I can't really talk about here because it will ruin it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had to learn that stuff. It's not like I immediately just thought, oh, hey, I'm amazing with finance systems. You know, there was a lot Mm. of – I had had to learn it. Um, So it was – it was hard. It was so worth it. And I really loved this book so much, you know, but, um, but it was very difficult. Mm-mm. And so what was the most enjoyable thing? Um, I loved Harper and, yeah. um, in a time where I just needed like some fun, I absolutely loved spending time with her, you know, um, and seeing the world through her eyes cause she's so ballsy and she like really is brazen and takes these risks and she's full of life force. And I just, um, it, it was, it was wonderful spending last year in her head because, yes. you know, it kind of was a really good balancing with what was going on in the entire world, you know? Mm. And she's also, <laughs> Harper is also very, um, real. She's not just one of these, fashionistas who go to Paris and, you know, want to yeah, <laughs> and just want to wear Manolo Blahnix, right? So, which, you know, yeah. so, it's, so that was really good as well. Um, yeah. All right. So um, with your second novel, um, yeah. that's being developed for television. Can you tell us anything more okay. about that and also um, uh, how you felt when you found out that that was going to happen. So that's The Strangers We Know. Um, I can't tell you any more information about that because it's all super secret squirrel until mm-hmm. it is um, made, until it's made public by um, the people who are doing it. Um, sure. But it's very exciting and mm-hmm. um, I'm thrilled about it and it's all moving forward. So I'm super, I'm really excited about that. It's a huge dream for me. Um, and also it fits really well with the book because for anyone who has read that book, the ending really ties in well with mm. um, it being developed for television. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and how did I feel? Like, honestly, super, just super excited. I mean, I was in Paris when I got the, um, the email from the agency who wanted to wrap it. Mm. Um, and I was not having a good day. I recall that. I'd had a really bad couple of days, which I know it's Paris, but if you're lonely, you have a bad couple of days, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I woke up and I had this message request on my Instagram um, because I don't have my email freely available on the internet anywhere. Um, So I go across and I have this message from this um, woman saying, um, I work with um, so-and-so. We'd really like to rep your... um, your book for film and TV. And I, at first I actually thought maybe it was a joke because, you know, it just seems so huge. Like, I, I mean, I know it happens, but it just seems so big. So, um, I sent it to my publisher and I think she also thought it was a joke because I didn't hear back from her for days. Anyway, so I have the phone call with, um, with the people and I realize that they're very definitely serious and then it all just happened. And, 
I don't know. Um, it was it was huge and it was wonderful, and it just shows that really good things can come out of literally nowhere. Mm, that's fantastic. Now, yeah. you're, you mentioned a bit of your background before. You've been an actor, musician, um, yeah. songwriter, um, but you also said before you want to do. You feel like you're going to do this forever. So, yeah. what's going? What's your career look like in the next several years um or in the next you know decade are you still going to do the other things or is this what you're going to focus on or how what yeah how are you going to um well craft your life since I started writing novels I haven't really done much of the other things to be honest like I do Mm -hmm. still play instruments and um sing at home but it's more just like a fun way to unwind kind of thing. Um, and the, the most acting I've done since I started writing novels was I, um, read the audio book for the Paris affair. So that was quite fun because I got to use that skill set. Yeah. It was really fun to do it again. You know, Um, although, you know, reading an audio book is so much more challenging than I would have anticipated Mm. mainly because you don't get, it's not like when you act and you do a scene and then potentially they give you notes and you redo the scene. It's, a case of you kind of read it through one time and if you ruin a sentence, yes, you can redo it, but that's it. You best get the yeah. scene right, you know. <laughs> it was such a shock. <laughs> well, good thing you know your book well. Good thing you know the story and yeah. the characters well then. <laughs> I was sitting there in awe of people who do it when they didn't write the book thinking, yeah. oh, my gosh, like because it was easier for me because I knew every character and I knew what was really going on even yeah. if – the reader didn't know it, but I thought, oh my God. <laughs> All right. And so finally, what is your, what's your top three tips for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position where you are one day? Okay. So just don't give up. That's oh, definitely yeah. hot tip number one, <laughs> mm. um, because there will be so many times you want to, and these kind of careers, and I mean this for all creative careers, are never a straight line. That's never an easy trajectory. Things go wrong, and then they go right, and you know, just keep going. Think long game. Um, the next one would be try to do it every day if you can, even if you only write one sentence or make one note in like your notebook about it. Um, just try to keep really involved in whatever you're working on. And the third one would probably just be, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe just um, like be brave. A tip you know, that works put, for you. Like a, well, yeah, that I mean that, yeah. that's a good one too. Yeah. It would be but, that one. Be brave. All right. out there. Like, well, you did, and think, yeah, yeah, fantastic. And happened, right? Like, mm. you have to, you have to really try and trust, and you know, love it. All right, congratulations on the Paris affair, and thank you so much for joining us today. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me. All right, there you go. There's Pip Drysdale. I'm sure it's going to be just as successful as the first couple of books. Um, what a great story. Book, the Paris Affair. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so we're almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Ala? Oh, good. Well, clearly I'm going to be very, very busy tweaking my 34-page chapter, so there'll be that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Apart from that, just the usual, you know, our stuff, hashtag our stuff. What about you? What am I? Well, okay. I've got a situation 
Oh, <laughs> okay. So, and it's the bizarrest situation. Actually, I'm going to send you a photo because it's so wacky. I just needed to wrap, as in pack and send, some artworks, which I've sold, which is yeah. very nice. And so I ordered some bubble wrap from Officeworks, right? Oh, right. my God. It arrived. I'm going to send you a photo. You, it's got to be seen to be believed. It is taller than me. It's about five times my size. That's for one roll. I ordered three rolls. It it barely fits through the front door. One roll barely fits through the front door. It's so what, you've got like a lifetime supply of bubble, of bubble wrap. wrap. I'm going to send you the photo. It's absolutely You could do the house. Just bubble wrap bubble the wrap whole the house. house and call it an installation. Yes, I have enough bubble wrap. It is, it's taking up all the room in the house. It's unbelievable. And also I then wrap happened. a kid, okay, and <laughs> wrap a kid in bubble wrap and then call it a, a statement on modern parenting. You got a spare kid? I can do that too. Oh, I've got random kids. I'll I'll send you. How many do you need? And how long can you keep them incapacitated for? Because that'd be good. <laughs> All right. So that's me battling the bubble wrap. That's what I'm going to be doing for the next several days because I don't know where to put it. I don't know what to do. It's just you. It's got to be seen to be believed. Anyway, that's the excitement in my life this week. Um, where do we find you online, Al? <laughs> Of all the things that you were going to say to me, I did not imagine a <laughs> lifetime supply of bubble wrap. <laughs> You'll find me, uh, where are we find me? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me in mounds and mounds of bubble wrap. But wrapping, otherwise, wrapping her house in bubble wrap. <laughs> otherwise, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.